Well, my name is Randy Madison, and I'm the interim executive pastor here at Kearney Evangelical Free Church. I've been here now for several months, and I think that I've met many of you. It's good to be back up here again this morning. Adrian is on vacation, and so we're stepping in for him today. And for those of you who have been guests or are guests with us this morning, you need to know that we have been on a journey. Starting way back in January of uh, this year, we embarked on a journey through the Bible, and it began way back in Genesis, and now here we are in June, and we're at the midpoint. We're at the midpoint of our year, and we're at the midpoint, almost at the midpoint of this study. And if you've been following along with us, then you know that our theme this morning is living as exiles. What does it mean to live as an exile, as a believer, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? And so we're going to be talking about that. And if you've been on this journey with us, then you know today we have come to that point in Bible history where the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, is now gone into exile. It lasted for 70 years from 605 B.C. to 536 B.C. And the situation is this. The nation of Israel has been divided and deported. Pastor Adrian has been taking us on this journey for the last several weeks, and he's described it for us. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom was overrun by the nation of Assyria. It'd be a little like the Civil War here in America, the north and the south. And now this morning, we're at 586 B.C., And the southern kingdom is in the same place because they've committed the same sins that their northern brothers did. The sins of idolatry and injustice, which Adrian talked about last week. They've been banished. They're no longer in their homeland. They're in crisis. And so this morning, we're going to pick up God's story and their story And Jordan Heinrichs is coming. He's our director of student ministries, and he's going to be unpacking this story for us this morning as he tells us some of his own personal story that weaves into this. So you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 3, because that's where we're going to be as he expounds the Word of God for us. We're going to see a number of truths here this morning as we follow the story of these three people, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You've heard their story before. They were friends of Daniel. But they represent thousands of other people that were in exile at this time. Their lives represent their lives. And maybe you can find your story in this story this morning. Listen to these four questions. Ponder them as you prepare to listen to Jordan. What does it feel like when your world comes crashing in at the age of 16 and all of a sudden, the life that you've known no longer exists and you're in another country? What do you do when you find yourself in a foreign land, isolated and alone, and everything that you've known is different now including your name. How do you respond when people around you ask, 
you to deny the God that you followed so devoutly all of your life? And most importantly, here's the last question. Think about this. How do you make it through? How do you make it through when you feel like you're in exile and you feel like God has abandoned you and you're all alone, separated from those that you love? Let me pray for you, Jordan. Lord, we pray that you would lead Jordan as he leads us now this morning. And as we look at Daniel chapter 3 and the truths that you have here for us in your word, I pray, Lord, that you would use him as your vessel, fill him with your spirit. You know where we are today, Lord. You know what we brought into this room with us. You know exactly where we're at. And so we would ask now that you would give us something that we need from your word that would encourage us. We ask in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Randy. So, as we begin this morning, again, my name is Jordan. I get to work with middle school and high school students here at Carney E. Free. And hello to everyone in here, and hello to everyone online. And I want to start with something that Randy said. Randy said that God's story, our story, begins in Genesis. And our story, that's where it begins. It begins in Genesis. That God creates a paradise for humanity to live in. He creates a paradise for Adam and Eve to live in. And this is a wonderful world that doesn't have any of the things we see on the news that causes our hearts to break. And because God does not want Adam and Eve to remain as prisoners in paradise, he places this tree in the middle of the garden called the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. And they have a choice. God gives them one rule, one command in the whole world, and that rule is they can't eat from that one tree. They can eat from any other tree they want except for that one tree. And as long as they obey that command, they remain in relationship with God. But they can choose to reject God and reject his authority and eat from that tree. Well, God's enemy, Satan, comes in and he begins to tempt Adam and Eve, begins to tell them that God doesn't have their best interests at heart, that God is not out for their good, but instead he's holding out on them. And that if they would eat from that tree, they would really know how much God is keeping from them. Well, unfortunately, they choose to listen to Satan instead of God, and they fracture and break our world, and they are exiled and expelled from the garden. In Genesis 3, 23, it says, so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. So they're banished or they're exiled out of this paradise. They are taken from that paradise, and they're forced into the world that we know, the world that is broken, that has pain and suffering. And I don't want to downplay the beauty of our world or the amazing, wonderful things that exist in our world, but I also don't want to try and sweep under the rug the pain that exists. Because I know in a room this size, there are many people that have experienced the pain of our world. There are people in this room that have walked through the pain of infertility, the pain of miscarriages, the pain of losing a son or a daughter, a brother or a sister, a mom or a dad or a grandparent. The people in this room are well acquainted at times with that our world is broken, that it's not our home, and there's a longing in you to get back to what was lost in paradise, because each of us was created for paradise. We were created for what we've lost, and so we long to get back to that. And that sounds odd because we don't think of ourselves as exiles, because most of us were born in the United States, and we've been raised in the United States. And so it sounds odd to think of ourselves as exiles, but we all have been exiled from the garden. 
We've been exiled from that paradise, and so we stand in this other world, in this far and distant land that we call Earth, where we live with painful and broken circumstances. And the time in my life that I most experienced that painful and broken circumstance was when my dad got cancer. Then on March 7th, 2014, my dad collapsed. He began to have seizures. So they rushed him to the hospital and they began to run tests to find out what was wrong. And when they discovered it, he has a quarter-sized brain tumor in his head. And so they did a biopsy and they began to try and remove as much of the tumor as they could. And what we learned was he had an aggressive form of cancer. And then later we would learn that he would have three months to a year to live. And so I begin praying and saying, God, would you rescue my dad? Would you save my dad? That in that moment, I realized how broken our world was. I realized that this world was not my home. And I long for a better world. A world without cancer, without disease, without death. And so as we all live as exiles, because whether you've come face to face with something like that, or it's just you have a job you don't love, or you have a lawn that always grows weeds, you know that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. And so we're going to look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three young men who are taken as exiles from their home to a far and distant land called Babylon. So we'll be in Daniel chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. And this is what it says. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And so there's this guy named King Nebuchadnezzar, and this is the king who has gone to Jerusalem, and he has conquered God's people. He has surrounded Jerusalem. He has laid siege to it. He has conquered its king, and he has plundered God's temple. That he took gold items and artifacts out of the temple, and then he also took prisoners of war. He took captives from Jerusalem, and he carried them off to Babylon, where he forced them to work in his government. And included in those are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so he makes this statue that is 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, and he covers it in gold, and then he gets a herald to go out, and he says, this is what you're going to tell all my government officials. You're going to tell them that I got a band together, and they're going to play. When the band plays, you're going to bow down, and you're going to worship this idol of gold. And when you do that, you're going to prove your loyalty to me. You're going to prove your loyalty to Babylon and to Babylon's gods, which is an issue for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because God has told them they should have no other God besides him. He has told them not to bow down to false gods of stone and wood and metal. But Nebuchadnezzar says there's going to be a consequence if you refuse to bow down to my statue. In verse 6, he says, whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. He says, if you will not worship my statue, I will immediately execute you. I'm going to toss you into the blazing furnace. So you have a choice. Would you like to stay loyal to your God and die? Or would you like to bow down and save your life? So this is the choice that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have. And the Bible doesn't tell us what went through their head in that moment. But I think it's pretty fair to guess that they had some of the same doubts and some of the same wrestles that we have. That when we come face to face with the pain and the brokenness that exists in our world, there are times when we think, is God really good? Does God really care about me? Is God really all-powerful? 
Because if he was all powerful and he was all good, wouldn't he have stopped this thing from happening to me? Wouldn't he have stopped our city from being conquered? Wouldn't he have stopped us from being captives? Wouldn't he have stopped us from having to be in the situation where this evil king builds a statue that we have to choose, what are we going to do? I know in my, my walk with my dad through cancer that I kept wondering, God, why aren't you doing more? It seems like you have all the power and all the authority in the world to do whatever you want, that in an instant you could snap your fingers and heal my dad, and you won't. Why are you doing this? And so they have this wrestle. And so again, they have this choice of, are they going to remain loyal to God, or are they going to try and save their lives and bow down and worship the statue? Well, the band begins to play, and people all around them begin to bow down and begin to worship the statue. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they stand. They refuse to bow down to the statue. They refuse to abandon their God. And I believe this gives us the first truth about living as exiles in this broken and painful world, which is we must know that God is with us. That if you can believe that God is with you, even when you're in the midst of pain and suffering, that it makes it easier to bear it. And this is the only reason I can see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would remain standing. That if they believe that the one true God of the Bible, the one true God who saved them from Egypt, who parted the Red Sea, who drove their enemies out of the Promised Land, was standing with them on the plane that morning when the music started, then they have all the reason in the world to stand. But if God had abandoned them, if he bailed, then why would they not worship the statue? Why would they not save their own necks so they didn't think God was going to come through for them? But they believe that God is with them. And so when we go through pain and suffering, we must believe that God is with us. We must not buy the lie that God has abandoned us or that he's forsaken us because God does not leave his people. He does not abandon his people, but he is with his people. Even in the midst of suffering, he stands with them. And so we must hold on to that truth when we go through painful circumstances. So let's look at Nebuchadnezzar's response because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have some coworkers who go and tell Nebuchadnezzar that, you know those three guys? They didn't bow down. They didn't worship your statue. The music started and they stood. What are you going to do about that, Nebuchadnezzar? And so in verse 13, it says, Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, when the band starts to play, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? So he gets him, he brings him forward, and he says, okay, I'm, I'm a nice guy. I'm going to have the band play again. And if you bow down, you worship the statue right now, we'll just pretend this never happened. I'll go back to my job, you go back to your jobs, everything will be fine. But if you refuse, if you choose to remain standing, and you refuse to bow down, then I'm immediately going to execute you. I'm going to throw you into that fiery furnace, and what God is going to be able to save you? That in that moment, he sets himself up against God. He says, I am the greatest being in all of the universe. That if I decide to murder you, if I decide to end your life right now in the fiery furnace, who can stop me? 
Your God will not be able to stop me, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So then we get to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's response. Before we read it, I want to remind us that these young men have been taken from their homes. They have probably seen family members and friends murdered before them in the battle that surrounded Jerusalem. They've been taken to a far and distant land where they have been forced to serve this evil king who stands before them and he is threatening their life right now. And to add insult to injury, he changed their names. That if you go back to chapter 1, they had Israelite names, they had Jewish names, and they changed them to Babylonian names. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are their Babylonian names. And so he's tried to destroy who they are. And they face this king, and this is what they respond with. In verse 16, it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Man, I wish I felt that way when I get in an argument with somebody over God, over Jesus, is that I would feel like I don't have to defend myself. God's got my back. And then they say, if we were thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. So they say, you said there was no God. You said there was no God, Nebuchadnezzar, that could save us from your hand, but there is a God. Our God. Our God who brought us out of Egypt. Our God who parted the Red Sea. Our God who gave us the promised land is here with us, and he can rescue us from your hand. But then they don't stop there. And they say, but even if he does not, even if, Nebuchadnezzar, we die today in the fiery furnace, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. This is the kind of faith I want to have. That I want to have the kind of faith that says, my God is able. That there is nothing too big for my God. There is nothing too powerful for my God to handle. But even if he does not, I'm sticking with him. Because I know that there is a lot of people in this room who face difficult circumstances. But our God is bigger. Our God is bigger than cancer. He's bigger than miscarriage. He's bigger than infertility. Bigger than the loss or the death of a family member. He's bigger than whatever you face in this life. But I want to have the kind of faith that says, even if he does not do what I know he can do, I'm going to stick with him. And so this gives us the second truth to live as exiles in this broken and painful world is we must know that God loves us. That if you are convinced that God loves you, and not just like you think he he loves you or you think he likes you, but you are convinced. You know that God is crazy about you. That God knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows your name. He even knows your middle name. That God is crazy about you. That he looks down from heaven and he sees you and he says, you know so-and-so? I love them. They're amazing. That God could go through each one of your names in this room and say, I love that person. And if you believe that, if you hold tightly to that, then you can take the fire. Then you can say, I'm going to trust God. Because God has asked me to walk into this fire in order to remain loyal to him. So I'm going to take this trial I'm going to take this pain, this suffering. I'm going to hold on to God because God is with me and because God loves me. And so when you go through those difficult circumstances, you need to increase the spiritual activities that remind you that God loves you. 
if that is writing Bible verses on a note card and putting it on your mirror, or taking a photo of a verse and making it your screensaver, whatever it is that reminds you that God loves you. For me, it was this song called How Deep the Father's Love, that when my dad was dying of cancer, I would listen to that song every single day. Because it reminded me that God loved me. It reminded me that God the Father sent God the Son to rescue me. Not just a faceless mass of people, but to rescue Jordan. And to rescue you. That God loves me enough to sacrifice his own son for me. And so that was the anchor that I held on to in the midst of losing my dad. Is that God cared about me. And God had the ability to rescue my dad if that's what God wanted to do. And if God wasn't going to rescue me and he was going to let my dad die, that I could still trust that my God loved me. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they know God loves them. They're convinced that God loves them. And so they can face the fiery furnace and say, we'd rather stick with our God who loves us than bow down and worship your statue. And the second point I want to make quickly about their response is it is amazing to me that there is no hostility in their response. That here's a king who is spitting venom and hostility at them. He is threatening to murder them. And their response is to call him King Nebuchadnezzar. They don't say, you dirty so-and-so, or you dirty rotten scoundrel. They don't say, our God's going to get you, Nebuchadnezzar. But instead, they call him King Nebuchadnezzar. They say, your majesty. Like, this is amazing. This guy is threatening to murder them, and you go, your majesty. Our God is able to save us. And even if our God doesn't save us, your majesty, we're going to stick with him. That we live in a world that is growing increasingly hostile towards people who love and want to follow Jesus. And as the world becomes more hostile, we need to meet that hostility, not with more hostility, but with kindness and grace and mercy like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That we need to meet their curses with blessings. That we need to meet their venom with the healing balm of Jesus' love and kindness. That we don't need to meet hostility with hostility because we have a God who's taking care of us. So we can say we don't have to defend ourselves in this manner. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do apologetics or we shouldn't defend the faith. What I'm saying is that we don't need to do it with an attitude or with arrogance or with combativeness, but we can meet that hostility from the position of our God won and our God is going to win in the end. And so our future is secure. And so we go on with the rest of the story, and it says in verse 19, Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. So Nebuchadnezzar, whatever the temperature they normally kept the furnace at, it would have consumed them. It was fire. Like it, it wasn't like it was not hot enough that it was going to kill them. But Nebuchadnezzar wants to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is the greatest being in all the universe. And that no one can rescue Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego once he decides to kill them. So he says, I want the fire seven times hotter than it normally will be. And then I want you to go find the strongest men in my army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That I want there to be no doubt when those guys fall in the fire that they're dead. That there is no way for escape for them. 
And then in verse 22, it says, The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. And if it were not for God, thus ends the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But God is with them, and God loves them, and God is for them. And so this is not where the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego ends because Nebuchadnezzar does not get to write the end of the story. God gets to write the end of the story. And so in verse 24, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, your majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. That God joins his people in the suffering. God does not remain far off, but he draws near. That God is with you right now. Whatever you are going through, God is with you. God wants to carry you through it. He joins Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, and he will join you in whatever trial you're in. And he will write the end to your story. That cancer did not get to write the end to my dad's story. That my dad did die. But he is now in heaven with God, and he is cancer-free. That he did not lose to cancer, and cancer did not claim him, but God came and claimed him. And he's spending eternity now in paradise with God. And so I don't know what your story is, but whatever that painful moment is, it does not get to write the ending to your story. If you would turn your story over to God, God will write the end to your story. And he will use whatever the enemy tried to destroy you with for good. That the enemy tried to destroy my dad with cancer, but God is using it right now for good. That he is not defeated by cancer. He is not defeated by infertility or miscarriages or disease or death or destruction. He will not be defeated. Because my God is for me, because God is for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they can face the trial. That this is the third truth we must hang on to in the midst of the trial. In the midst of the broken world that's full of painful circumstances. As we must know that God is for us. That if you're convinced in your heart that God is for you. That he is after whatever is best for you. He is most concerned about your goodwill. And your goodwill does not mean that everything is always wonderful and easy. But that he is after you becoming like Jesus. He's after you becoming a kind and gentle person. And he's after the good of your family. Then you can face these painful, difficult circumstances knowing, I don't understand why God did what God did because I don't understand why God did not answer my prayer and heal my dad. Because like I said, it'd be like this. God could have done it in a second, but he didn't choose to do that. Instead, God, allow my dad to die. But I know without the shadow of a doubt that God did not fail me. God did not let me down just like he did not let down Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But there is something that I cannot see that God is doing that there will come a point, I hope, that I will see. And I realize that, God, this is why you said no to my prayer. This is why you didn't do what I wanted you to do because you saw something bigger that I wanted more than my dad. Because I believe that if I could see all that God could see, I would ask for what God does. 
And so I don't know what your circumstance is. I don't know what is you've been praying for that God has been saying no to. But God loves you. And God is with you and God is for you and he is not letting you down in this moment. He is with you. He is near to you. And he's going to carry you through the fiery trial. He's going to carry you through the difficult circumstance you're going through. That God is not out to destroy his people or to crush his people. If you look at Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah and God explain why the exile happens. In verse 10 through 14, it says, This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me, and when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. So God says, the reason I sent you into exile was not to destroy you. It wasn't to break you or to crush you, but it was to cause you to realize you needed me. Because they realized that when they were in Egypt. They realized that when they were in the desert. But then they get into the promised land and they begin to forget about God and they begin to worship the false gods around them. The gods of stone and wood and metal. The gods that cannot rescue them, cannot do anything for them, that are nothing but inanimate objects that are causing them to do despicable things. And the worst thing God could have done would be to leave them alone. He could have said, you know what, you want that, go get it. See how that works out for you. But because God loves his people and he cares about his people, he said, I'm going to allow your enemies to conquer you because once you are conquered, you're going to realize you need me. And then you're going to cry out to me and I'm going to hear your voice and I'm going to bring you back. That is not to destroy you that you're going through this thing. It's not to harm you, but it's to do something that you cannot see. And then we have this benefit that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't have because we have the cross. That we can look back at Jesus on the cross and we can see the proof of these three truths. We can see that God is with us because Jesus did not stay far away in heaven, but he came near to us. He lived among us for a time and he came near to us to die for us. That he allowed his creation to drive nails through his hands and his feet. He allowed his creation to tear the skin from his back with whips. He allowed his creation to push a crown of thorns onto his head, to slap him and beat him and mock him and spit on him because he loved them enough to die for them, because he wanted to rescue and save them from their sin, to save them from all those things that they did that were wrong that they wished they could undo. Those times they hurt people with their words or their actions. He wanted to rescue them. So this is the proof we have. And that's our fourth point. To live as exiles in this broken and painful world, we must remember that Jesus died for us. So Randy's going to unpack that a little bit further. You know, Jordan, as I'm listening to you walk us through this chapter, I'm reminded of an event that took place in my life just about a week ago. We were at an IPM conference in Chicago, and the workshop leader was giving a workshop, a presentation on prayer and fasting. 
And so at the end of the workshop, somebody asked him the question, does God always answer yes to our prayers? What would you answer to that? He thought about it for a moment, and then he said, no, God doesn't always answer yes to our prayers. But if he doesn't answer yes, it's because he has a better yes further down the road. Do you feel like you're in exile this morning? Maybe you've never been deported from your homeland. Maybe your nation isn't, our nation isn't divided. But we can all identify with Jordan's story at some level, can't we? And we can identify with the story here of these three men. And there are times in our lives where we just feel like, well, we know God's real. We know the truth of the scriptures, but we don't feel like he's there. It's like he's abandoned us. And the ultimate proof of the fact that God hasn't abandoned us, that God is with us, that God loves us, that God is for us, is found, as Jordan just said, in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Reminds me of one other story. Years ago, there was an Episcopalian direct rector living in the state of Virginia. He told the story of living as a young man in England, and he was attending Cambridge University. They invited an American evangelist to come and speak there at Cambridge, the cultural center, center, an intellectual center of the world. And so this young man got together with four of his friends, or three of his friends, and they sat on the front row on that occasion to listen to this evangelist speak, and they were there to ridicule him, to make fun of him, because he butchered the king's English. They would have been like Nebuchadnezzar and the band in this story. And there they sat on the front row when D.L. Moody got up to speak, and he got up and he looked at these four men on the front row and he said, young men, don't ever think that God don't love you because he do. And they were so taken aback at his horrible English that they proceeded to listen to what he had to say. And he began to talk to them about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that God sent him to die in your place and in my place and in Jordan's place for us, even though we didn't deserve it. We were like the nation of Israel. And that's the ultimate proof of God's love. He came back to the same line in that sermon, and he said once again, young men, don't ever think that God don't love you, because he do. And I want to tell you this morning that wherever you are in life, whatever your situation today, don't ever think that God don't love you, because he do. And the cross of Christ is the ultimate proof of that reality. The Bible says that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still imperfect, mess-ups, sinners, Christ died for us. And he will never, never leave you. He will never, never forsake you. In fact, the fourth person in that fiery furnace, if you're going through a fiery furnace today, it's an interpretive issue, but I happen to think that it was a pre-incarnation appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will not abandon you. He's in the fire with you. 
I think Jordan has one final thought for us this morning. Thank you, Randy. As we close this morning, I want to briefly talk about how we will not always be exiles. That if we have placed our faith and our trust in Jesus, we have the hope that Jesus is going before us to prepare a home for us. He's preparing a place for us. And so this world that is broken, that is flawed, that is full of painful circumstances at time will not be our home. That we have the great hope of heaven and the great hope of being reunited with Jesus in paradise. So as we finish the story with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it says in verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. But there's this King Nebuchadnezzar who calls Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of the fire, and they leave the fire, and they have not been harmed or consumed or, or burned by it. And there is coming a day for all of us who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus where the King of kings and the Lord of lords is going to call us out of this fiery trial. That he's going to call us home to the place he's been preparing for us. And we will get on the other side and we will not have the wounds or the diseases or the destruction we had here. That my dad is in heaven and he is cancer free. The cancer did not get to lay claim to him, but God laid claim to him. God grabbed a hold of him and he said, this, this man is mine. And I prepared a place for him. We fast forward to Revelation 21, 3 and 4. At the very end, it says this. It says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That there is coming a day when this exile will have passed away. There is coming a day when whatever it is you face, whatever it is you wrestle with, whatever it is that bothers you now will pass away. And if you have placed your faith and your trust in Jesus, he is going to take you back to paradise. And our exile will be over. And we'll be reunited with him where there is no more crying, there is no more pain, there is no more suffering or death. And that's good news. That's good news that whatever I face, that when I walked through cancer with my dad, I knew this was not going to be forever. That there was coming a day when God was going to say no more to cancer. So as we sit here in the middle between the paradise of the garden and the paradise of the new heaven, we hold on to these three truths. We hold on that God is with us, that he will not abandon his people. He will not abandon you in your trial. Do not believe the temptation to think because bad things are happening to you, he's forgotten you. That God loves you. That God is crazy about each one of you. And that God is for you. That there is something, and I, I don't understand with my dad's situation why God said no to my prayers, but I am convinced that there is something God is doing that is bigger than my prayer to heal my dad. 
So we hold on that God is with us, that he is for us, and that he loves us. And when we struggle with doubting those things, we look back to the cross where we are reminded that Jesus Christ, Christ died for us. That this is the proof of God's love. This is the proof of his promises that he would give up his only son for each one of us. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for your son. I thank you for rescuing us, God. Thank you for making us new. We pray and ask, God, for all those that are hurting right now, that are in the midst of the trial. God, would you please comfort them? Would you please help them to know that you are near to them? Would you give them the confidence and the conviction in their heart that you are for them? That you're not trying to destroy them or break them, but you are trying to grow something in them that only this trial can grow. God, for anyone in this room that has never placed their faith or their trust in you, God, I pray that this moment might be the moment they say, I'm tired of running. I'm tired of trying to make my way on my own, but I want someone who will defend me. I want someone who will stand with me. I want someone who will rescue me and who will prepare a place for me. And that someone is Jesus. That if you would say, God, would you forgive me a sinner and turn towards him, he would rescue you. And I pray that that might be something that would happen this night, this morning for anyone who's going through that trial, who realizes their need for you. God, I pray this all in your son's incredible name. Amen.